without further ado, I'm going to introduce Ben Duncan Jones. Ben is a PhD researcher in the School of Humanities at the Montfort University. He's affiliated with the International Center for Sports History and Culture. He has an interest in social history with a particular focus on the history of violent recreation in, the 19th, in 19th century Britain. He also has interest in history of sport and leisure, history of crime and criminal justice, and the use of digital tools in historical research and analysis. He works as the program manager for the School of Psychology and Counseling at the Open University and has a long-standing interest in combat sports and fitness training. It is, on, in fact, on digital methodologies he is discussing today, digital methodologies, digital methodologies and 19th century prize fighting. Ben, take it away. Hey, thanks very much, Matt. I'm just going to Okay, so as Matt said, I'm a, a part-time PhD student at DeMontfort University. I'm very pleased to have this opportunity to present two elements of my project, which is a study of bare-knuckle prize fighting in 19th century Britain. This paper will begin to show how digital methods borrowed from other historical disciplines can contribute to and enhance the existing historiographical picture and for a long-standing gap in the scholarship by centering on quantitative analysis of digitized primary resources relating to prize fighting. The first part will be a brief overview of the methodology I intend to apply to its key digitized source, some of the practical issues involved in the early stages of a digitally centered research project. The second will be a visual presentation of some of my data as a demonstration of how it could be managed, interpreted, and used as evidence to address my research questions and perhaps provoke additional questions. But by way of a disclaimer, this paper is describing a work in progress and the coding required to extract the bulk of my data still needs to be undertaken. However, this methodology is based on a successful project undertaken by Katrina Navakas from the University of Hertfordshire in partnership with British Library Labs to collect data on the Chartist movement from digitized radical newspaper, The Northern Star. In fact, it was a comment Navakas made about her study that convinced me this was an approach which could be applied to my own research. They discovered listings for over five and a half thousand meetings in 462 towns and villages between 1841 and 1844. A task that would have taken years to collect by hand, but was completed in minutes with a bit of Python. Python being the programming language used to locate and extract the data from the texts. I also hope this paper will be of interest to researchers that may be using or considering the use of digital methods and sources. And of course, those with a more general interest boxing during this period and any feedback on the process or the content is welcomed. As a brief introduction to my topic and aims, prize fighting, which is the term I'm using to describe bare knuckle fighting for a financial reward, was a popular recreation during the early 19th century but experienced fluctuations in popularity and an eventual decline from the mid 19th century onwards. Despite this, prize fighting was somehow able to retain considerable currency and influence beyond the ring socially, culturally, and materially. It's perhaps surprising, therefore, that despite its popularity, comparatively little history has been written on it when compared to contemporary popular sports, such as cricket, football, and horse racing. Therefore, my study seeks its primary aim to understand what caused the emerging rational industrial society of the early to mid 19th century to turn away from traditional pre-industrial leisure activities like prize fighting, and how that change can be mapped across this period in doing so, I'll examine the changing internal attitudes, external perceptions, and the wider social reception of prize fighting by considering three main themes, social control, class, and gendered violence. Those themes will highlight some of the conflicting forces at work, both internal and external to prize fighting, 
Firstly, what were the motivations behind the regulation and criminalization of traditional leisure activities? And in contrast, how is that resistance manifested? Secondly, how were changing attitudes, interactions and tensions between the and within the upper, middle and working classes that had previously enjoyed an acceptable shared leisure pursuit expressed? Thirdly, prize fighting was an overt and masculine validation of male on male violence with rules and rituals that informed casual fist fighting. And this study will consider the culture of male violence, its codes and transient identities and what sustained them. These questions will be underpinned by a quantitative analysis of primary sources. And I hope to discover new connections and patterns in the data, enabling prize fighting to be used as a lens through which to view British culture and society during this period. Historians of prize fighting have made extensive use in newspapers and periodicals. Both Dennis Brailsford in, in 1988, writing pre-digitization, and Adam Chill in 2017, who benefited from fully searchable electronic databases, have noted that these are some of the best sources of prize fighting data for the period. However, existing works are predominantly qualitative and focused on the personalities of the ring and significant events. There has not been a systematic analysis of prize fighting during the 19th century using such materials. This is a gap I've identified. In this paper, I'm focusing on a single digitized source, Bell's Life in London and Sporting Chronicle, which is perhaps the most popular sporting periodical of the 19th century, reaching a peak circulation of 30,000 copies a week by the mid 1850s. Bell's Life ran for almost the entire period of my project from 3rd of March, 1822 to the 3rd of January, 1886. In terms of content, it included a range of general and sporting news and over time increasingly devoted space to reporting on prize fighting in a dedicated column titled The Ring. In terms of tone, the paper was critical of interference in what it viewed as a sporting gentleman's natural rights to the enjoyment of British boxing, on occasion poking fun at establishment figures and the clergy in the process. It had considerable continuity in editorial policy, being edited by Vincent George Dowling from 1824 to 1852, and then by his son, Frank Lewis Dowling from 1852 to 1867. Fortunately, the British Library collection, digitised in partnership with Gale, and also available through the British newspaper archive, doesn't appear to have any coverage exceptions. And as such, it's a very comprehensive record for the period. In terms of locating the data within Bell's life, particularly useful issues are those published in the final week of December or first week in January. They often included an annual roundup of the fights from the preceding year. This was styled as a chronology of the ring. Aside from the annual summary, there was also a wealth of qualitative data within the weekly column throughout the year, which included a detailed round, detailed round by round fight reports, biographical information on the personalities of the ring, pro-pugilism commentary and other prize fighting related information, such as police interference, the activities of and deaths of well-known fighters and advertisements from boxing instructors. Therefore, the data needed can be located very precisely to the page and often the specific column. This is helpful when creating the parameters needed by the programs used to extract the data. Another helpful feature, aside from fights being recorded in a dedicated column, was that the data followed a standard presentation format. The fighters are listed alphabetically and the winning fighter's entry contains the fight details. They fought more than once in the year, they're listed in date order the dates are written as March 11th, not yesterday or next Tuesday, etc. In some issues, the ring isn't identified as a separate column, 
and the data is included as part of the boxing news on the sports pages. But this is more time consuming to find using a keyword search, the normal method of finding data in a digitized source. Using the data in the chronology from Bell's life is an estimate across two sample decades indicates there were 30 to 45 fines recorded annually in the 1830s, but in the 1860s this rose to just over 100 fights a year. This is interesting, as it was at this point following the excitement of the Great Prize fight in 1860 between English champion Tom Sayers and the American John Carmel Heenan, and again in 1863 when Heenan fought Tom King, when prize fighting had been reported as being in decline. As Henry Downs Miles, who also wrote for Bell's Life, noted in the introduction to Pugilistica, his history of British boxing. The third and concluding volume would include the decline and fall of the prize ring, with occasional flickerings of its olden fire till its final expiry in the doings of Tom Sayers, John Carmel Heenan and Tom King. Looking at my estimate of the number of fights per year, this suggests serious underreporting in the early period or a misreading of the state of prize fighting by Miles in the latter, which on the surface seems unlikely but bears further investigation. So having identified Bell's life as a very significant source, this leads me to some practical considerations when dealing with digitized sources. And there are questions which need to be answered before any work can begin, and which make a possible application to the data owner an important part of the process. For example, who owns the data and or the particular digitization? Is institutional library access required as with Gale, or is it behind a paywall like the British newspaper archive? And what are the policies for rights and reuse? How confident can you be that the collection is complete? And has it been completely digitized? What was the digitization history as the age can affect the quality of the data you receive? I'll return to this in the next section. Today, I've manually created all the records in my database. However, this is extremely labor intensive and painstaking work with the possibility of, of missing records and introducing copy errors. Hence, my hope is to harness the power of computation to extract the records in bulk. However, I'm not a computer scientist and this requires a fairly specialist set of skills. To that end, I've been exploring the possibilities of collaboration with the British Library Labs to secure some dedicated support in developing the code needed to locate and extract the data. And I've approached Gail, who owned the digitization, with the intention of acquiring the full data set to allow complete extraction. Gail also have a digital lab with analytical tools, and it's possible to organize access via an institutional subscription. Gaining access to support in this way, as I've discovered, is an unavoidable necessity of this type of research. As I mentioned, the age of the digitization can affect the quality of the optical character recognition, or OCR scanning. And while technology is improving all the time, older scans can be unreadable. Securing a copy of the full data set is crucial, as it should give you a text give you the text as images and the OCR scans. So if needed, one can be checked against another or run through an application to improve the OCR quality. Inevitably, this means quality of returns can vary. And for that reason, manual checking for accuracy is required to clean the data. As the image on this slide slows, shows, the place name isn't the correct spelling. And various spellings in the OCR text don't correspond to the text in the image. However, any study that's concerned with human geography has to accept that place names, place name spellings alter over time and boundaries are created, shift or simply cease to exist. The number of false positives, noise in the data and quality of OCR, especially on older digitizations, will vary by collection and the search parameters. 
And one must also be aware of the classic trap of disappearing down rabbit holes, even virtual ones, which is extremely easy when further sources are only a few keystrokes away. In this instance, I double checked that it isn't actually a Bernard Castle and a Barnard Castle, and how far it actually was from Sunderland. It's probably far enough for a decent eye test. In terms of the data collected so far, I've spent a considerable amount of time cross-referencing sources to place the fight locations as precisely as possible. And my objective is to perform text mining to locate new data, clean it and extract it ready for geocoding. That's matching the data, in, um, in this case, a location recorded in the source with a physical location in a gazetteer. The process of doing this is beyond the scope of this paper, but if you're interested, I can recommend the Programming Historian website, which has excellent self-learning resources. As my project progresses, it's likely I'll, I'll need to compile a custom gazetteer to refine that process and structure the returns to make the geocoding more accurate. The next step will be preparing those data translation into a visual representation and analysis. As these data have a geographic characteristic, they lend themselves to aggregating and displaying in a map, showing the intimate relationship between power, place and space. The importance of this was highlighted by John Bale in the early 80s, who stated, without the geographical dimension, the study of sport is incomplete. More recently, Emma Griffin, looking at cruel sports, considered the relationship between popular recreations and the use and availability of space. And Martin Polly noted sports historians could benefit from engaging with other disciplines, such as cultural studies, geography, archaeology, and heritage studies. Unfortunately, prize fighting has virtually no physical legacy, certainly when compared to other sports. Temporary grandstands were constructed for high-profile fights, sometimes with injurious consequences to the spectators. A turf ring could be raised to provide a better view, and there remain a few sporting public houses that supported or hosted fights that haven't yet made way for shopping precincts. Despite the paucity of archaeology, spatial data survives in written texts and remains possible to consider the specific geography and topography of the ring. For example, was the fight close to a county or parish boundary, allowing participants to evade the police? Was it held on private, common or no man's land, offering elite or customary protection? Therefore, what remains in these texts are the means to reveal prize fighting's transient imprint on the landscape. The two maps in this slide display similar data in different ways. Both maps were produced using a process of geocoding the data taken from Bell's life. On the left is a Choropleth map produced using QGIS, an open source geographic information system. It shows a number of fights by county between 1800 and 1840. Yellow counties had no recorded fights, though this is likely to be a gap in the record rather than the reality. It's easy to understand, visually appealing, and a simple way to display the data but it's not possible to get a sense of the local context and several maps would be needed to compare longitudinal data. However, the advantage of applications like QGIS, they do allow you to combine data using a relational database and layers to make the maps more useful. For example, in the future, adding population data and census registration districts to get a sense of population density, and how that might intersect with the location and frequency of fights. And as each census district was significantly smaller than the county, they offer a more granular geographic view. In terms of layering data, showing how improvements in transport and communication networks were used to enable spectators to reach more remote sites and consume information. But what does that indicate about changes to acceptability over time? Well, the real power of mapping tools like QGIS is the ability to produce composites 
to better visualize spatial and societal relationships. The map on the right was produced using Google My Maps, another free application based on Google Maps. This is a built-in gazetteer, and over 1,500 fights have been added so far in two layers. Blue pins are fights from 1800 to 1840, and yellow pins from 1861 to 1863. The limitations of this application are such that it can't show multiple fights in a single location. In this sense, it's too accurate. What it does offer is ability to focus in on a specific area and store contextual data in the location pin. For example, if this works, you can see a particular fight in rugby, which has some individual data included in there. There are some cases where the historical record itself makes identifying and mapping the location of a fight challenging, resulting in double or even triple counting if a fight was forced to move location or reconvene at a future date due to police interference. For example, when James Cox fought Richard Dodd in Islington on the 22nd of August 1831, the police intervened and moved them on. They travelled to Poplar and fought again, where after being knocked senseless, Dodd was taken to a hospital ship moored at Deptford in Kent. He died soon after, and Cox died from his injuries a few days later. Subsequently, the men's seconds were arrested and tried for manslaughter at the Kent Assizes, where their defence argued the indictment was unsafe as it wasn't clear where the offence had taken place. Cox and Dodd had fought in two Middlesex parishes, and the victim had died in different county entirely. However, the judge summarily dismissed this as a technicality, stating the place of death was irrelevant, rather it was the blows which, which constituted the felony, and sentenced Dodd's second, James Hargreaves, to transportation for 14 years, and what appears to be a subtle shift in emphasis to the violent nature of the crime, rather than the outcome of what witnesses had described as a fair fight. This shows, as much as checking the reliability of the output from geocoding, the data in the narrative, sorry, the, the data in the narrative of the, of the geography map, excuse me, uh, this shows that as much as checking the reliability of the output from geocoding the data, the narrative and the geography matters, and so does paying close attention to the outliers to appreciate the nuances within the evidence. At this stage of my project, these data are raising more questions than they answer. For example, how frequent were fights in certain locations, and what made them popular? What were the locations' spatial and topographical characteristics? Was there a significant regional diversity to how likely a fight would be disrupted? How much money could a fighter earn and what was the changing nature of prize fighting's funding? How many times did the men fight? For how long, at what age and against whom? And towards the end of this period, this mapping could show some accuracy where prize fighting endured and where it fell away. And if overlaid with demographic data, it may bring to light how they interacted with identities of class and ethnicity and community type. In conclusion, this paper has attempted to do two things. Firstly, to illustrate the potential advantages of using digital methodologies in sports history beyond keyword searches and sampling and digitized sources. Some of the benefits may seem prosaic, such as the time saved gathering large quantities of information, the ability to rapidly sift through those data. But by doing so, you can discover connections, particularly over space and time, which may be otherwise difficult to identify. There can be just as many unexpected finds in the virtual archive as the physical. This method isn't a replacement for the detailed study of primary source texts. As Navacast notes, a macroscopic view is not a challenge to close reading, 
but a complement at a different resolution. I've also sought to highlight some of the practical issues to consider when embarking on this type of research, such as being able to secure, extract, clean, and importantly rely on the data. And more broadly, due to their convenience, digital sources could unwittingly take on a primacy that obscures other evidence. I believe this is especially pertinent in the current situation as they offer one of the few ways to continue to conduct primary research. Secondly, the paper discussed the use of digital methods to aid in the analysis of a large data set, enabling the use of GIS to support that investigation and display the output in a visual format. This activity is like training a computer to be a particularly stupid stiffer dog. You must very carefully set it on the scent, but once the parameters are established, the computer can do a great deal of the heavy lifting. And when completed, the historian is free to address their questions using whatever technique and methods they favour. In addition, if the data are shared publicly, the resulting transparency can only improve the quality of scholarship and allow others to conduct their own inquiries. Finally, I'd like to return to the title of my paper, which is taken from the 1861 edition of Vincent George Dowling's Fistiana or Oracle of the Ring, and relates to an anecdote passed on to Dowling about a French fencing master after witnessing Daniel Mendoza's skill in boxing, said he would only need a few fencing lessons to become a master of the sword. Mendoza consented to be instructed and after a few lessons acknowledged the benefit he had derived. I wonder, could this metaphor be extended to researchers already proficient with more established methods to consider utilising alternative approaches to help with answering their own research questions? Thank you for listening. Virtual round of applause right there for Ben. Well done, Ben. Um, okay, so we've got a few questions in. And first up, we've got Connor Heffernan. Connor asks on chat, in Ireland, digital folklore collections exist and are useful for sport. Does such a thing exist in England? Um, I, not to my knowledge. Um, if there are any, I'd be really pleased to, to be pointed in that direction uh, because it probably would save me an awful lot of, of work. But if there are such things available, that'd be great. I mean, for this particular project, um, really what I've got are the newspapers, periodicals and other digitized sources. So some other um, historical texts have been digitized, but it's whether they've got the optical character recognition that you can use, that the, that the program can use then to extract that, that data. Um, but yeah, if anyone has any leads to any any digital um, sources, that would be that would be marvellous. Scotland has some, but but obviously Scotland's a very different case than England in terms of you've got the well in Edinburgh you've got the School of Scottish Studies archive, digital archive, Tobleran Duchess, but the, there tends to be a geographic bias there in terms of being out of the cities, so it's maybe um, worth investigating. But obviously it's a very different case. Next up, I've got a question here from, um, it's a map question from Richard Body. Bristol, Gloucestershire was a hotbed for the prize ring, but on the map seems to be consumed by Somerset, he asks. Yeah, that's a bit of a problem because Bristol um, could be Gloucestershire, could be Somerset, don't shoot me if you're from either county and you claim Bristol is your own. But um, historically, I believe it was in, in, in Somerset. I think it depends which side of the river you're on. Um, Yes, that is a problem, and that's a problem with with mapping all of these. In that, th boundaries change over time, locations change over time. I found lots of places where there's you have the name of a, a village or town, and that name is reused. So, for example, Quinton 
is used in about four different counties. So it's quite hard to place things sometimes. And I, I did, um, yeah, I did kind of labour over the, the Bristol, because some fights will be named as being in Bristol, and then some fights will be, uh, you know, near Bristol, and then you think, which, which, which county does it does it fall into? So yes, that is a, a, a particular issue with, with with mapping historical locations. I think one thing I can possibly do in the future is I would like to geo-reference a historical map on top of a current map, and then when you create a, a more accurate gazetteer, you can look at a map that's actually of of the time. So the Corapleth map that I did that is historical counties. Um, but of course, those county boundaries change periodically. Next in the queue, we've got a question from Joseph Bumstark here. How high was the fatality rate due to boxing during this period? And did the rate change over time? Um, I don't know how, I, I couldn't say with any accuracy how high it was, but I think the reporting of it changed. So you you get better reporting as 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 time goes on so there might be um you have to be careful interpreting the data i think in, in that sense because it could look like the boxing fatalities actually went up or actually it's just the reporting of fatalities that that, that goes up um i can say with, with, with certainty that punishments for fighters that were involved in a fatal fight didn't change a great deal so despite the example I gave where the, the second got 14 years, um, transportation for 14 years, that's highly unusual. So um, even until even into the later period, people were not being being punished for being involved in, 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 in fatal fights. But there, yeah, there, there, there are more, more than you might imagine, or perhaps not, because it was pretty dangerous. Next up, we've got one from the chair, Raph Nicholson. This is a fun one. I like this one. Why do you think sports historians have been often been so focused on qualitative rather than quantitative sources? Are we just a very blinkered bunch? No, I don't think so. Because I mean, I've only I mean, I've come to this this kind of method um, fairly recently, and I've only recently begun investigating how how to actually con conduct a, you know research in in this way. And I don't think that I think really it's I mean, we we're obviously involved in in uncovering um, things from the past, and they often have great stories attached to them. But I think there are various ways we can we can tell those 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 stories and try and re recreate perhaps what what went on. Um, so I think the the qualitative qualitative um, approach is. You know, there's there's no um, you know, neither has supremacy over the other. I think they're completely complementary, um, and I think for this for this particular project, because I want to do a, a study that ranges over quite a long period, it it seems appropriate to try this method, and then to support that with um, with case studies that will be far more detailed at particular points. So no, not not blinkered at all. Um, just uh, perhaps, and for myself as well, you know, it's, it's unfamiliar territory, maybe. One final question, and I've got it for you, um, Ben, because it leads on from Raf's point. 
what um, boxing, bare knuckle fighting, pugilism, um, what what's basically in terms of the terminology is terminology a big problem in terms of quantifying what's going on here? You've you've said as much, but the actual in terms of what is it that's going on? Is it you know is it a problem to be able to quantify the amount of fights that take place with the terminology available? Yeah, I think that does uh, that is a, uh, a challenge because it will be referred to as different things in different places at different times, and so I think when when you're trying to create a, your search terms you have to you have to be quite broad and you have to think about the particular source the particular time when it was when it was written so um you know glove boxing wasn't popular until later in the period and, the, and even the, the term boxing is used in different ways um pugilism used in different ways fist fighting there's, there's various different terms that are used and yes I, th I think the terminology definitely has a um is, is a factor in this, this kind of research it, it, you really have to kind of um i mean i guess anybody that's even done keyword searching in in digital newspaper archives will, will know that you can get a huge amount of hits on on certain terms but then of course you get things you don't want and you have to try and filter those out so it's a it's an evolving process of of uh, of trying to, trying to finesse your your terms is that i don't know if that's a very good answer but well circa 1865 that's a fun one to put into a, to put into a search engine that's why <laughs> then um we also did ask that and there's a question there's a comment for you but from keiko Ikeda on there as well that you might want to read and richard body is asking for your email address please can you type it into chat so that if anybody has any questions for you or anything like that, they can take it offline as well. So I think one last final round of applause for Ben Duncan Jones. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Now we have Marjolaine Van Bowel. You're ready to go, Marjolaine. I'll, I'll introduce you right here. Marjolaine Van Bowel is a postdoctoral research at the Institute of Historical Research at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. In November, Van Bowel will start a postdoctoral fellowship at the Department of History, University of Antwerp in Belgium, lovely city, where she will collaborate with the University's Center for Mexican Studies. Her main research interests are gender, sexuality, the body, and oral history method. Van Bowel obtained her PhD degree in history from University College London and holds a bachelor and master's degree in history from the University of Antwerp, as well as a master's degree in gender society representation research pathway from UCL. She carried out an academic visit to Yale University and she is talking about a different place, a different time, ending the prohibition of women's boxing in Mexico City for, in the 1990s. Marilyn. Yes, thank you very much. Just so this should be up and running, right? Uh -huh. Great. So, um, in December of 1946, Mexican President Manuel Avila Camacho banned women from taking part in professional boxing in Mexico City. The city's boxing commission became responsible for the enforcement of the prohibition. By the 1990s, five decades had passed and the regulations of the Mexico City Boxing Commission still barred women boxers from entering the Mexican capital. <clears throat> Yet, between 1940, and the 1990s, much had changed for Mexican women. 
They were granted a right to vote in 1953 and their participation in public life, as well as their social and economic mobility had increased considerably. Nevertheless, the Boxing Commission seemed set upon ensuring that the Mexico City boxing scene would continue to be a man's world. However, in the mid-1990s, Mexico City native Laura Serrano became the first lightweight champion of the Women's International Boxing Federation, which also made her the first Mexican or Latin American woman to become a world boxing champion. Serrano's outstanding achievements, her national and international visibility, and her combative character inside as well as outside of the ring made it impossible to uphold the prohibition. Yet the Boxing Commission put up a fight, resisting many efforts to allow women to box in the Mexican capital. Today, I will shed light on this important moment of transition in women's boxing in Mexico City, providing an overview of some of the arguments that were used by each corner. A few months before Laura Serrano made her professional debut, a Mexican newspaper quoted Dr. Horacio Ramirez Mercado, who was the head of the Boxing Commission's medical services. He reportedly said, from the anatomical point of view, boxing is not an appropriate activity for the female sex. Even if women use a certain type of protection, blows will somehow affect them in the short, medium, or long term. The Mexico City Boxing Commission's regulations prohibit boxing between women, and I consider that they should remain this way. Thus, the argument that women's physical constitution was different from men's was used in order to oppose women's participation in boxing. Echoing old-fashioned theories that held that bruises to the chest or torso would become cancerous, he considered the dangers of cancer development to be more elevated to women due to the location of the breasts versus the male genitals. The medical doctor also provided aesthetic reasons for his rejection of uh, women's boxing. After all, in the ring, women could sustain cuts to their faces, something he seemed less worried about for male boxers. According to Serrano, there was also the fear that blows below the waist would cause infertility in the women boxers. In response, Serrano argued that while such arguments may be true, the physical consequences might not be that severe if protective gear was used that was adapted to the women's bodies. Dr. Ramirez had also voiced that the chest protectors used by women boxers abroad were comparable to the groin protectors used by male boxers, and he even imagined the effect upon impact on the mammary glands to be comparable in pain to the hits to the male genitals. Yet, Dr. Ramirez did not seem equally concerned about male boxers' potential to develop cancerous tumors or infertility, even though men's, reprodu men's reproductive organs, in contrast to women's, are located externally. Dr. Ramirez's gendered and sexist thinking was framed as medical knowledge without a clear scientific foundation. By the 1990s, a consensus existed internationally that boxing was indeed a harmful practice. Yet, concerns were not about fertility or cancer development, but rather about the effects of boxing on the brain. Already in 1983, the Journal of the American Medical Association published an editorial piece titled Boxing Should Be Banned in Civilized Countries by the journal's, ed journal's editor, medical doctor George D. Lundberg, who argued that boxing should be banned on moral, ethical, and medical grounds. The same issue also carried a report by the MAA's Council on Scientific Affairs on the medical matter of the boxing sport. Operating under the assumption that boxing could not be stopped, the report made recommendations for a better control of the sport. The next year, in 1984, the British Medical Association also published a report on the medical dangers of boxing, which followed an earlier report by the Royal College of Physicians in 1969. According to Kenneth Sherd, the report 
sent shockwaves throughout the British boxing establishment because it stigmatized boxing as brutal, sadistic, and damaging to, to participants and non-participants alike. Boxing was regarded as physically and morally damaging to boxers and morally damaging to those who took pleasure from watching it. The report made use of advanced scientific techniques from the, for brain examination, particularly the CAT scan, and paid attention to the chronic brain damage, which was claimed to be a normal part of boxing. So although the medical opinion about the dangers of boxing had been largely divided until the 1960s, by the 1980s, the medical dangers of boxing had become fully accepted by the medical profession, as well as the boxing establishment. And all were concerned with minimizing those dangers through supervision and control. These international developments received extensive coverage in the Mexican press, and the Mexican boxing establishment as well saw itself obliged to engage with the growing calls that boxing was dangerous to its participants. In 1982, the same Dr. Ramirez was quoted by a newspaper as saying, any fighter who climbs into a ring is at risk of dying because of boxing's tough nature. Some injuries, especially those to the brain, accumulate and at some point can become fatal. The doctor stressed the importance of good defensive training since this allows fighters to avoid receiving too much punishment. Thus, fully aware of boxing's dangers, um, boxing's dangers to fighters, Dr. Ramirez did not see this as a reason to prohibit men from boxing. Rather, he argued for the importance of fighters' preparation. The same, the same newspaper article also reported on the additional measures taken by the Boxing Commission to ensure fighters' well-being. So what was it about women's autonomies that made boxing particularly harmful to them? Why was women's boxing to be banned while men's boxing could carry on if taken protective measures? Sheard already argued that it is almost certainly the case that no sport has been banned or prohibited simply because it posed dangers to health. Ideological and moral issues are implicitly or explicitly present within these discourses. Consequently, I argue that understanding the exclusion of women from boxing provides important insights in the ways in which sporting spectacles intersect with political and social ideologies expressed within sporting environments, legal frameworks, the political ambitions of authority figures and administrations, mass culture, and society as a whole. By analyzing the arguments of those in favor of and those against the legalization of women's boxing, insights are provided into the multiple and changing social cultural beliefs about Mexican women's proper social and bodily roles in the 1990s in a broader context of social political transformation. Since the 19th century, much of the cultural understanding of what Mexican femininity represents can be understood as connected to motherhood. <clears throat> Throughout the 20th century, Mexican women's participation in social and public life increased steadily due to processes of economic modernization and political change. Yet, women's access to the public sphere was tempered by strong discourses of domestication or redomestication. In a moment during which women's social and economic mobility was increasing, political elites as well as hegemonic intellectuals insisted in the fact that women should not, to look, to, not, should not look to develop themselves outside of the domestic sphere. The gender stereotype of the self-abnegating woman was pitted against a violently macho man. There was a clear understanding of what characteristics women could not and should not share with men. This is masculine attributes such as strength, decisiveness, decisiveness courage, and violence, all ascribed to and naturalized in the concept of male Mexican masculinity. While aggressiveness has been construed as natural for Mexican men and thus a masculine trait, for women it has been considered to be unfeminine. The image of women's aggression aroused fears of the blurring of gender lines that are experienced as natural. Women's boxers' embodiment of muscular strength and their portrayal of violence 
challenged the historical and biological notions of the properly feminine body constitute, constitute as docile and fragile. However, plenty of Mexican women did not fit, nor did they want to fit within these gender constructs. And Laura Serrano stands as a clear example. On the 20th of April of 1995, Laura Serrano became the first WIBF lightweight champion, beating Deirdre Gogarty to the title. Against the backdrop of Serrano's success on the world stage and the recognition of her achievements in the national context, the prohibition seemed to become increasingly untenable. A few weeks after Serrano's world title victory, the president of the Mexico City Boxing Commission, Davy Garcia Estrada, promised to instigate a series of medical and technical studies in order to evaluate women's boxing to, to, to determine whether to regulate it. Garcia Estrada motivated the decision to look into the matter of women's boxing by referring to the profound changes at the close of the century, which he argued imposed a greater openness towards the achievements of women and their struggle to make their way in the fields of sports, economy, and politics that were previously close to them. Garcia Estrada explained that such analysis had to be carried out in accordance with the idiosyncrasy of the Mexican woman and with special attention for a meticulous medical inquiry. He mentioned that a type of referendum would be held and that the phenomenon of women's boxing would also be studied from a psychological point of view. The head of the commission's medical services, Dr. Ramirez, described the matter of women's boxing as a delicate affair. In a patronizing tone, he reportedly said, now that Laurita, and Laurita is a uh, diminutive for Laura, so now that Laurita won the world title, we have received requests for it to be, for it to be accepted. We need to do a multidisciplinary study with lawyers, doctors, trainers, manufacturers of sporting gear, padres de familia, which are probably, uh, probably uh, or presumably male heads of family. Um, so we need to do a study because we are facing a new phenomenon. He ignored that women's boxing was not a new phenomenon at all. It had been present in Mexico, present in Mexico since the first decades of the 20th century. Nor did he seem to think it necessary to listen to the experiences or opinions of women boxers themselves in the study. Moreover, while only a few years earlier he had used medical arguments to legitimize women's exclusion from boxing, now the argument was that there was no clear information in respect to the effects of boxing on women. A year later, Dr. Ramirez admitted that no such studies had been carried out yet. Moreover, the commission's new president, Pascual Ortiz Rubio, simply said, I'm not a doctor, nor do I know much about the matter, nor are the doctors of the commission qualified to comment on the positive aspects of this modality. Serrano was vocal in resisting the Boxing Commission and furthering the cause of women's boxing in the country. Besides engaging, besides engaging in exhibition fights that contributed to the visibility of women's boxing elsewhere in the Republic, she also petitioned the cause with the Boxing Commission and did interviews with newspaper journalists and on the radio explicitly lamenting how the leaders in the boxing sport continue to hinder and block her just for being a woman. Serrano herself is a lawyer. She had taken up boxing at the National Autonomous University of Mexico where she had studied law, and she used legal arguments for her cause. She voiced that Article 5 of the Mexican Constitution protects the right of the Mexican citizen to freely practice a lawful profession, which professional boxing had been for men for a long time. In denying women that right, Serrano said, the constitution was violated and the individual rights of female citizens were disrespected. By the end of 1997, something seemed to be changing as preparations were underway for a historical moment in Mexican history. 
Boxing promoter Don King was flying to organize a boxing event in Mexico City that besides two WBC world titles in men's boxing would also include two women's boxing world titles. Laura Serrana, Serrano would be fighting Isra Gigra, while Christy Martin would, would take on Lonnie Summers. The event was scheduled for the 7th of March of 1998. However, during the last press conference, only days before the scheduled event, the WBC president, Jose Sulaiman, announced that the Tories had denied the authorization for the women's boxing bouts with bases in the 1946 presidential decree. At the press conference, Serrano said, I'm very angry with my country's authorities because in its election campaign, they promised to support women, but it is clear that this is actually not the case. Here, Serrano referred to that year's major political shift, the one-party system and dominance of the three-party that had held uninterrupted power in Mexico for seven decades had finally come to an end. Since the late 1980s, the legislative branch had won in power and important grassroots movements of human rights and civic action groups appeared. Decisive advances were made in the domain of gender equality as feminist action and gender politics had deepened. Moreover, following changes in the Mexico City's, uh, Mexico City's electoral status, in 1997, the city's governor was for the first time elected rather than simply appointed to the position by the Republic's president. The PRD politician, Cautemoc Cárdenas, who had campaigned on the importance of gender equality, became the city's new mayor. Serrano said that she felt disappointed because she had hoped that the new sporting authorities would give more support to women. Yet, she did not see any equality as they kept marginalizing women athletes. She also voiced that the only support that she could count on apart from the press was in the form of women's, group, women's groups of the National Sports Commission from the Sports Women and Health Association. Serrano was also considering approaching women within the PRD political party to ask for help to modify the 1946 boxing rulebook. Soon after Serrano's clear condemnations, which were very much reported upon in the press, the government secretary, Rosario Robles, at the request of the Mexico City Mayor Cárdenas, summoned Serrano in order to help her to assure, and to assure her that the new government fully supported women's causes. Yet, the so-called help came too late, only a day before the scheduled event. Serrano told Robles that the best way to really help her was by modifying the rules of the Boxing Commission in order to ensure that women's rights were respected allowing them to professionally box in Mexico City. The next month, the Mexico City Legislative Assembly announced that the ban of women's boxing was unconstitutional and from April 15, 1998, women were allowed to box within the Mexican capital. The next week, Dr. Ramirez announced that a study was underway by an interdisciplinary team of between 10 to 12 medical specialists, such as ophthalmologists, psychologists, oncologists, and gynecologists gynecologists in order to write up a new regulation, regulation of women's boxing. Nevertheless, again, history repeated itself. The official permission by the Mexico City government withstanding, members of the Boxing Commission continued to resist women's entrance in the professional rings of the Mexican capital. And again, Ramirez's promises about a medical investigation in order, in order to regulate women's boxing seemed hollow. Another month later, it was reported that the new president of the Mexico City Boxing Commission, Victor Lopez Esquivel, claimed that he had no knowledge of the permission. It took yet another year for the commission to be forced to its knees. In May 1999, the Mexico City Sports Law was reformed to include Article 5, 
which explicitly stated that each individual has the right to practice sports regardless of sex, political, or re re religious beliefs. The reform was motivated by the fact that although the Mexican constitution, constitution guaranteed the equality of men and women, discriminatory criteria still prevented women from practicing particular types of sport. The document explicitly referred to the example of those who have prohibited women from boxing. This new degree governed all athletes, as well as public, social, and private sporting organisms in Mexico City. Ultimately, this decree, this decree gave athletes the explicit power to sue anyone who threatened to discriminate against them. I, sorry. Finally, on July 3rd, 1999, women boxers entered a Mexico City boxing ring in, a, in an event titled The Weak Sex? Ana Maria Torres fought Mariana Juarez and Gloria Rios boxed against Maria Duran. Considering Serrano's important role in ending the prohibition, it seems surprising that she did not partake in this event as a boxer. Rather, she entered the ring as a special guest to open the evening's event, receiving a standing ovation from the crowd. It had been this combative woman who had brought an end to the prohibition and she was willing to challenge, as she was willing to challenge a patriarchal and sexist power system both symbolically inside of the ring, as well as legally outside of the ring. Although it had been what she described the longest and toughest fight of her life, she had finally knocked the boxing commission out cold. Yet, the male gatekeepers to the Mexico City boxing sport proved sore losers and Serrano paid a price. She was never given the opportunity to fight in her home city. Nevertheless, her example inspired many other Mexican women to take up boxing and it is thanks to her that many of them did enter the Mexican capital um, to fight. Well, thank you. Round of applause. Yeah, virtual round of applause. Thank you very much, Mario Len. I'm just gonna put Ben's information up here too, as well, to everyone. Um, and now we have some questions. And first question is actually from Ben Duncan Jones to you, Mario Len. We're the same barriers in place for amateur women boxers or was the intrusion into the public sphere of work also an issue? Uh, that's a very good question that I, I still need to focus in um, upon more. But um, starting with the 1946 prohibition, it was also aimed at amateur um, boxers um, because it, it applied both to uh, professional fights but also exhibition fights. Um, although it wasn't very, said very explicitly. And when it comes to the 1990s, it was very much still in effect for all kinds of women boxers. And the moment that the prohibition was um, lifted, the gatekeepers to the Mexican boxing sport were very much surprised where all these um, women boxers were coming from all of a sudden, both professionally and amateur. I, I think that in 99, I think, um, the Golden Glove, was opened up to women for the first time and um, they were expecting like 15 women to sign up and there was like 40 or 50 uh, amateur boxes. So um, although it wasn't explicitly said what kind of boxes is the, the prohibition applied to, it, it very much applied to any woman who wanted to box. I mean, there was also a lot of resistance even, even in the gyms um, coming, yeah, just a lot of resistance. Okay, I've got two related questions here as well. One from the first from Connor Heffernan, the second from Matt Taylor. 
Uh, Connor Hefferton asks, did Mexican physicians cite European or North American medical authorities when claiming it was unsafe for women to box? Was Mexico unique at this period? Matt asks, similar question to Connor's, were there any links with similar developments in other parts of the, U the world? In the UK, similar struggles with women's boxing were going on at exactly the same time. Um, good, very good questions. Um, I've been trying to find information on um, what Mexican physicians were saying about this topic, and I haven't found anything yet. Um, but the, the Mexican context very much was aware of what was happening abroad, like, um, for example, publications in the UK, in the US, in the Lancet, in the Journal of the American Association, they were um, very much known, I mean, even cited upon in the press when it came to um, just a normal newspaper um, reporting upon, uh, in the 50s even, uh, how this, this politician um, Summerscale was trying to abolish boxing in the UK, this was reported upon in, in New Mexico. Um, all the reports in the 80s and 90s were reported upon here. And um, like putting the, the topic on the table here as well. And, and when you see when the WBC was um, started, this was also in a context of a lot of controversy. So, I mean, um, I feel that these, these are very much international developments happening in the boxing world the boxing world looking at the medical profession engage, engaging with the boxing sport. But when it comes to Mexican doctors, I haven't found um, local reports or publications on the risks of boxing generally, let alone on um, women's boxing. But I'm, I'm still looking and it would be great to find something on this. Um, was Mexico unique at this period? Um, well, obviously Mexico was not unique in, in prohibiting women's boxing. Um, women's boxing was prohibited in many contexts and it took a long time for it to be accepted. I mean, it took until 2012 for women's boxing to be included in the Olympics. Um, so that is very much telling. And I think I haven't read specific studies on the arguments that were used against women's boxing in um, other contexts when it comes, for example, to medical arguments. But I think it's quite comparable in the sense that obviously boxing internationally is, is construed as the virile sport, the sport of men, the art of men, right? Um, the masculine art of boxing. So I think it's very much comparable. Um, it would be interesting to compare, for example, I, I mean, the, the presence of, the importance of motherhood and femininity, I think, again, you can find in many contexts, but I feel that this is particularly strong in Mexico. So I, I would like to compare, um, for example, in the UK, no, I mean, if anyone has more information on this, I, I would love to know. Um, but whether the presence of the fear of um, women, like I see that I also do research on, on women in Lucha Libre and in, in the Mexican type of professional wrestling. And here as well, it's very visible that people are very scared of the idea that women could become aggressive um, because this would imply that they would be bad mothers, which would also apply um, 
dangerous to the nation as a whole because women are responsible for bringing up the the nation's citizens so and and I mean, if this, this, all this structure breaks down, it's not just femininity that breaks down, it's a society as a whole that breaks down. So, yeah. It's interesting, you got, actually had a question right there from Rodrigo Milan that asked, were the arguments for banning women boxing similar to the ones for prohibition of women wrestling? So I think you've mm -hmm. answered that question right well, there. Well, I could say, it's, it's, <laughs> I love that question. And I'm actually, uh, I'm hoping to publish several articles that will show this, but there is an overlap, but there's also differences because um, women, women's wrestling becomes banned in Mexico as well in the 50s, almost like 10 years after boxing, women's boxing was banned. And the interesting thing is that it was banned by the same commission because the boxing commission became also responsible for Lucha Libre. And the arguments, while there is no clear, I haven't really found clear arguments for why this president or why in this moment um, women's boxing was banned in Mexico. There is a lot of information in the Mexican press that shows you why women's wrestling was banned when it was, because um, while women's boxing is a threat, because obviously it shows aggressive femininity, which is transgressive and so forth. In wrestling, it's a little bit different because there, there, although there's also violence and aggression present, it's more of a theatrical performance. It's not as bloody, it's not as violent. Um, and also in the 50s, early 50s, late 40s as well, wrestling becomes very much uh, construed as an erotic uh, spectacle with um, the women being uh, comparable to, comparable to pinup um, images, especially in that period when there's a lot of foreign women wrestling in, in Mexico. And it's only when the, a big, a, a first group of pioneering Mexican wrestlers comes up that the authorities become nervous because these women are not the stereotypical erotic vision from like the women from the US. They are um, shorter, darker, very muscular, and also a bit more violent in the ring, um, which intertwines also with the moment that television comes up. So Lucha's Libre is on television. So there's this fear, um, again, that um, a bad example is going to be shown to the nation. So even though there is overlap, there's also differences, which makes it very fascinating. Okay, mm -hmm. hey, um, Marilyn, thank you very, very much for your presentation. Ben, once again, thank you very much for your presentation. I think another round of applause to the both of them.